0: Last Sunday morning, Dan England and I had a great, wonderful privilege. Rosemary Lamy had arranged with the third grade Sunday school class, their parents and teachers, for a Bible breakfast to stump the pastor. (laughs) Now, stumping the pastor isn't all that difficult but they had prepared questions and had ideas that they wanted to bring in to see if we knew what they knew. And they did stump us because one of the first questions was, name the brothers of, jo- of Joseph. And we could get some, but then they did lend us a Bible uh, so that we could do that. And, and another one said to me, how many animals did Moses take in the ark? I got you got it. You passed it. And I said, Well, he didn't need it because he went on dry ground. But the excitement and enthusiasm that they represented helped me feel the vitality and excitement that these kids bring to learning. And since most of my contacts are with my contemporaries, it's very exciting to see the imagination and creativity with which they approach some of the enigmas of scripture. And then when I looked at the lectionary lessons for the morning and realized that uh, the New Testament one was on the cleansing of the temple and the Old Testament was on the on the decalogue or the giving of granting of the Ten Commandments and then a psalm and a passage for Corinth I said, now, how do I put this together? But the more I wrestled with it and worked with it and prayed over it I realized that there's a really fascinating combination here that we can look at. And, and part of it, though, is put, brought together by the 19th Psalm, which I didn't use, but I want to share with you from the Peterson translation, because it really catches many of the themes that are followed through in the way they, the lectionary did this. It said in the 19th Psalm, God's glory is on tour of the skies. Godcraft on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds class every morning. Professor Knight lectures each evening. Now this is a psalm. Their words aren't heard, their voices aren't recorded, but their silence fills the earth. Unspoken truth is spoken everywhere. God makes a huge dome for the sun, a super dome. In a morning, the sun's new husband leaping from his honeymoon bed, the day spring sun and athlete racing to the tape. That's how God's word vaults across the skies, from sunrise to sunset, melting ice, scorching deserts, warming hearts to faith. The revelation of the God, of God is whole and pulls our lives together. The signposts of God are clear and point out the right road. The life maps of God are right, showing the way to joy. The directions of God are plain and easy on the eye. God's reputation is 24-karat gold with a lifetime guarantee. The decisions of God are accurate down to the nth degree God's word is better than a diamond better than a diamond set between emeralds you like it better than strawberries in spring better than ripe strawberries there's more God's word warns us of danger and directs us to hidden treasure otherwise how will we find our way or no, when we play the fool. Clean slate, God, so that we can start a day fresh. Keep me from stupid sins and from thinking I can take over your work. Then I can start this day sun-washed, scrub-clean of the grime of sin. These are the words of my mouth. These are what I chew on and pray. Accept them when I place them on the morning altar, O oh God, my altar rock, God priest of my altar. Now we haven't probably quite heard it that way, but it brings together, and the excitement is only Eugene Peterson can do. And and then in First Corinthians, he's talking about you know, God is calling you to the amazing thing of the cross, what it's about, and you know, not many of you are great, and not many of you are outstanding, and. the the Greeks want a sign and the Hebrews want a miracle but God has come to us and he's taken us from where we are and claimed us and called us to be a part of bearing his message to the world the God of love and so in this uh, way it it is an exciting thing to see the, the setup. and it was out of this context where Jesus had been nurtured and had been trained and and had and grown with the understanding of the scripture. And, and when he was a boy, you remember about 12, he went to the temple uh, with his parents, and you remember they went off without him, and they came back, and there he was with the wise with the counseling with them. And now, at the beginning of his ministry, as we find it in this passage in John, why he came in on Passover, and the place wasn't what he may have remembered on those other days. But it was a marketplace. The place that had had been so sacred had become very secular. And a place of, of communion was turned to a place of commerce. It was a total distortion of the divine because they had rigged the system so that to make your offerings, you had to buy your coins to do it, and you had to buy your animals to do it, and it was a monopoly. And it fared well for all those who were rigging and running the system. And Jesus came in with the, with the enthusiasm of a, of a new young prophet. And saying, this isn't what our Lord intended. This is the house of God. This is my Father's house. We need to have communion here, not chaos and commerce. And so he... Overturned some of the tables and drove the money changers out to try to purify the place and uh, uh, the, the the rage of the multitude was against him for what he did, and others were amazed to see but he was trying to recapture some of the stuff that Moses had given and so we go back to the to the passage in Exodus where we talk about the the uh, Giving of the Decalogue, the giving of the Commandments, because Moses was dealing with an unruly group when he was trying to get them out of Egypt and through the wilderness, and they were disgruntled and angry, and and uh, Moses turned to God and said, "Help me!" And God called him to the mountain and he gave him then those that we know as the commandments because you have to have order to sustain community and god gave them the the commandments as a way of being able to sustain a community against the the distortions of life and the distortions of imagination and the distortions of of the way we fall apart unless we're committed to goals and to purposes and to ideas, and so uh, the Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, uh, took the ten and put them down to three to simplify it, but to, to concentrate it. And I think that's enti- very helpful. The, the first theme of the commandments: was that you don't have another God. There's nobody else. The question is. Where's your ultimate loyalty? To whom do you give your ultimate loyalty? And when you do that, you don't take images put up that can somehow distract you from that loyalty. And then you don't take the name, and it isn't just swearing. That, you know, have you ever heard someone, I swear by this? Meaning so that we can really say, well, I really stand by this, but we need to make our commitments that we stand by our ultimate commitment that God is our guide, our source, and our help. And, and then the other part of the commandments, which is so central, is keep the Sabbath day. Now, we have a hard time doing that. It's a hard time in our culture to be able to observe a Sabbath. But what they were really saying here is the Sabbath is a way of democratizing the social order. So, everybody's on the same plane. Labor... And owners and slaves and animals all must rest but behind that what is, what is so very important is to help us aware that you're not in control Now the psalmist picked up that you know, and talked about it we, we think sometimes we're in control and as a psychoanalyst I have people sometimes who are, are aspiring to that position of being in control And I tell them it's a very dangerous thing to try to run the world because the job is taken. (laughs) And it may get you in real trouble. So that we can't take over. We need to have the concept of, of God's order taking us over so that we know how to blend into the rhythm of the spheres and of life and understanding. And then he said you don't covet. And coveting is we understand, and it puts all the other parts of that sound. Because really, uh, the commandments was really what it's about is is uh, seeing our, our our appetite, our aspiration, our desire for more, so that we have become in our time rich in things but poor in soul, as the old psalms, song said. So that the coveting is that we. We fail to yearn for that which is deepest and satisfy for that which cannot satisfy, as the scriptures have all told us. That uh, we can't have more. We need to have more of our commitment. Now, if you want a really good study of the Ten Commandments, I recommend Chris Hedges' book on losing Moses on the freeway. Because he gets it interpreting the Ten Commandments in contemporary American life. And Chris Hedges is a, is a good writer. But I have a question for you. Now, I can't answer it all right now, and I may not be able to answer it all in the coffee hour, but I'll take responsibility for the question. But I think it's, in Lent, something we might do well to explore. When we think about those in Sinai trying to bring order. Let me ask you a question. Do you suppose... the golden calf of Sinai... has morphed... into the bronze bull of Wall Street? You know... the Jews, when they were gathered there in their frustration... took their wealth... And threw it into the fire, so it could make a calf, hoping it would sustain and guide them when God seemed to be absent. But what do we do with our treasure? I something more to be followed up, because for me and the struggle of our time. Gates really puts it together. You remember in his poem on the second coming, where he said, turning, turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood dim tide is loosed and everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Can we hear our falconer And doesn't the noise of the passionate intensity scare you? It does me. On Thursday in the New York Times, there was an article that immediately caught my attention and and frightened me. Because it said that the number of hate groups in the United States has mounted more than it had in the last 30 years. And there are over 1,016 named hate groups spewing their hate into our society and poisoning, as I would say, the well of consciousness for our community. And uh, these hate groups are people who are violent... And determined and full of passionate intensity, now the clan has gone down, but these other militants who are who are uh, fired up in the in the uh, questions of of, uh, of race and religion and and sex i I'm not sure we really yet have accepted the fact that we have an African-American president. And there are people who have other choices about how they want to covenant with a partner. And the rigidity of our memory paralyzes our possibilities of coming to know and relate to one another. And so there, there is a climate of fear and hypocrisy and hate that really is abroad in the land and disrupts the processes of political and religious and social and conflict. And in the midst of that, where are the voices who say in the scriptures, come, let us reason together. Let us reason together that we may hear the word of God that we may hear each other, that we may understand. And the churches, in many cases, have not been helpful in dealing with this situation because uh, uh, we, have, we have gotten to the place where dogma is more important than deeds and we lose a sight of justice and Compassion. And unfortunately, we're beset in many places by gynecological theology. How tragic. I think the Lord realizes there's more to us than that. And calls us to a place of of understanding because the call is for neighborliness to be brought together in a way that we can be there for one another. It's an art and a science that's so drastically needed. Do you remember Scott Peck? Some of you, I'm sure, have read his Road Less Traveled, and some others, me, have read also The People of the Lie. I don't believe all of it, but it's a good book in many ways. But Scott Peck said something that I've treasured and I've used it in weddings sometimes but I think it's good for us right now. Listening is love in action. And one of the failures of our time has been the failure to truly listen to one another. To hear and to want to know what the other has to say. I was standing in this pulpit back some months ago and and that conviction just came over me that how I can't brush off but I want to bring together so that I can listen to what people are saying because people who are shouting are fearful and hatred is fear. And if we can learn to listen to one another, if we can hear... Because the 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 cacophony in the society even echoes in the church. And even here, we have failed to listen and to hear one another. And saying, tell me, I want to know that we're not afraid of each other, but we're called together in Christ to be sisters and brothers in a divine community that helps us relate to serve and to care so that we're called upon to be agents of reconciliation. Think of the greatness that came in South Africa when they had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to, to bring together a people so greatly and violently divided. And so we are, brought, we are called upon to be the people of faith, to love and to care for one another. We're called upon, as Paul said so rightly and in Second in Corinthians, to be agents of reconciliation. And that means everywhere. We risk ourselves. And Bishop William, Archbishop William Temple struck me in his passage on this cleansing of the temple because he said, the purge of the temple is no less the shrine of our own hearts. And how we can set up that shrine in our own lives to be cluttered with all the things that clutter our lives and our emotions and our thinking and our relating and our being together. Because the heart needs quiet and reverence. And it's called us to be there to dwell. Because... We're called to love one another, but that love isn't simple, and it isn't easy. We're taught in Lent that love is costly, because it isn't about me, it's about the other. It's about the forgotten. It's about the lost. It's about the least, and we're called to that. He's called us. The basis of a Christian community is God's call. And you have it. And you feel it. And this morning, we made a commitment to Grayson. I don't know how many, I, most you know, seem to participate when we asked, will you do this? But we're doing something to commit a consciousness of listening and reconciliation to another generation that faces things that you and I had never imagined and may feel totally overwhelmed. But by love we're called by God to embrace Grayson and his generation as God has graced us. Do we dare to listen To hear. Because in the most amazing places. God's love. May come through to us. In a place we never imagined it. Until we paused. To listen. And that's where the spirit can also speak. Amen.